0: another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Monica, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Yes, my name is Monica Wiesek, and I'm the author of America's Last President, What the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy. So my book is um, essentially a policy book, and I tried to be as comprehensive as I could. So I tried to, you know, I focus a bit on domestic policy and also a bit on foreign policy, and I tried to cover, you know, to be as comprehensive as possible. So it covers a wide, wide range of policies. And I essentially wanted to give people an opportunity to really discover who JFK was, you know, what he was doing for Americans, what he was doing really globally for everyone, and what we all lost as a result of his death. Because I want people to understand that this is not some obscure event that happened 60 years ago, but that we're still kind of living with the repercussions of his assassination. And you know how much just changed between him and Johnson, because I think a lot of people think that there was, you know, great continuity between Kennedy and Johnson, and that not a lot changed. But in my book, I try to show that, you know, chapter after chapter, after chapter on topic, after topic, after topic, a lot of things did change between Kennedy and Johnson, and in my opinion, not for the better.
0: Before we dive into that, can I just ask how you even got, like, were you a Ke- Kennedy fan? Did you grow up kind of, you know, talk, like a lot of these people I talk to about the Kennedy, usually it's about his assassination, but a lot of them, I, you know, little kids watching TV and seeing all these traumatic events unfolds. And then this man that would hop on television and would give these speeches. And even when I listen to some of them, my generation has to listen to him on YouTube. But when I see them, it's like, this guy might, it might sound a lot like a lot of the things he's saying is very normal today. But back then, it was so revolutionary. I mean, a famous quote of mine is that, like, I'd rather my kids be red than dead. And if you know that time period, it's like you're being soft on communism. It's like, well, hang on a second. He just understands, like, we're just going to keep fighting and fighting, and it's never going to end. And it's like, that's revolutionary.
1: Yeah, so I, I've always had a curiosity in John F. Kennedy since I was a little kid. So I had seen his civil rights speech which had really, really impressed me. So I must have seen it when I was like eight, nine years old, maybe even younger. Um, But then, you know, particularly when I was growing up, like in the 80s and 90s, I had also heard a lot of negative press about him. So there was constantly press stories about, you know, he was a drug addict, he was trying to kill Castro, he was just chasing skirts while he was in office, like, you know, he was really shallow and superficial. And so as a child, it was a little difficult for me to reconcile kind of the image I had seen in the speech, which I thought was someone who was really thoughtful and empathetic and, you know, and compassionate towards others. And then there's guy that was really kind of shallow and surface level and not really doing much and maybe a little shady, which was kind of the, the press image that I was getting. So I was always kind of a bit curious, you know, um, and then I, the, I think it was around '91 or so. It must have been '10, '11. Um, the film JFK came out, and I remember all I remember is like all day or every day on TV, I kept hearing the word JFK, and there was this film JFK, and I had no idea what the film was about because you know I was a kid, I wasn't really listening to the news coverage. But so I thought it was a film about JFK, and I thought Kevin Costner was JFK. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the theater and I'm going to learn who JFK was because I kind of always had this curiosity. And I think within a few minutes of the film, I was just so disappointed because I realized, wait a minute, Kevin Costner is not JFK. And this film is about the assassination. It's not about Kennedy. So I'm like, I'm not really going to learn who JFK is in this film, right? So I think always since I was young, I was more interested in who Kennedy was than I was in the assassination. And that's because for me, like once you know he it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald, then it really comes down to, well, what was JFK doing? What were his policies? you know, who were his, who was his opposition, things like that. And that's really what interested me, um, rather than like, you know, bullet trajectories or things like that. Not that those things aren't important. It's just not where my interests lay. Um, But I didn't, I was still kind of a very distant interest, if that makes sense. I wasn't reading any books or anything like that. 2008 was the first time I ever read a book about JFK. And I think it kind of came about, you know, as I was growing up, I kind of became more and more, I guess, disillusioned with the American political system, particularly the Iraq war. I never believed in the weapons of mass destruction narrative. It seemed very propagandistic to me. So I've always been kind of, like, I've never even liked being in a store and a salesperson coming and asking me, do you need help? Like, I'm always very, I don't like being sold things, right? And so that war seemed like somebody was trying to sell me something. And so I was very turned off to that propaganda. Um, Obviously, I didn't know if there were weapons of mass destruction, but it just felt so propagandistic that I, you know, I was very kind of like, why are we invading Iraq? Like, what is going on here, right? And so, you know, I think in the back of my mind, there was always this, like, you know, how do I understand what's going on today? Where is the place to start? And it seemed like Kennedy's assassination, you know, was the place to start because, you know, if it wasn't Oswald, which I never really believed it was then you know what was jfk doing you know what i mean and does his assassination have anything to do with the way our government operates today with the way our society operates today with the way our power structure operates today because obviously you know whatever entities were involved in his death were were very powerful and that power likely continues to today And so I felt like if I'm going to understand today, maybe the place to start is with Kennedy's presidency. So that's kind of what got me interested in studying JFK. But it was a slow process. You know, I would read a book here and there, you know, for maybe about a decade after 2008. And it wasn't really until 2020 that I really intensely, you know, started looking at Kennedy, where I started listening to every speech and every press conference and you know, really started looking at declassified files myself versus just reading books, you know, that other people had written. Um, So it was a long process for me.
0: What was some of the biggest revelations for you? I mean, the assassination, if most when i first got interested into it most people would just say it was like the military industrial complex it was rogue elements of the cia or something like that and you're like then what does that mean though like why would a man be targeted and then i started learning more about communism and kind of this no communistic attitude that our government had for the longest time i mean going through hollywood uh Edgar hoover mostly looking for communists labeling people as communists and then you're just like Well, what's Kennedy doing? And then you look at what Kennedy was doing, and it was this aspect of bringing peace. You know, what would be seen as looking soft on communism in some aspects. And I know a lot of people get like gets a little more controversial when people say, "Well, he didn't live to fulfill any of these things." And they say, "How do you know he was going to do it?" I'm like, "But just talking about that, like pulling soldiers out of a war, you're backing down, and to the enemy, that could be seen as like you're weak or something like that." And that's kind of how our government was viewing things, but. For us, it's like, that's common sense today. Like, we don't want to go to war. We don't want all these. There's a lot of things that a lot of people don't agree with. And if you know about business, capitalism, and then you look at the military-industrial complex as capitalism, what's the best ground to cover when we need ground? You know, Stopping a war where it's causing you to invade another country. I mean, these are things you start lining up and go, oh, he pissed off somebody's money making machine, or he did something. And that's when you really start diving into who this man was and what was he exactly doing policy-wise and character-wise.
1: Yeah, I think for me the thing that really impressed me is that he was serving the American people. He was doing his job, right? So the job of a president is to serve the public, the full public. And he even said in a speech, you know, that 14 or 15 million Americans, you know, have the resources or the money to have Washington serve their interests and the interests of all the other Americans is the responsibility of the president of the United States. So in my lifetime, I feel like there's no president that really I've impressed or that I even have respected, you know, that I felt was serving the American people. But he, I think what really struck me about him as I studied his presidency, you know, whether it was domestic policy, whether it was foreign policy, he was serving the public and not just American people, but really globally, like the common person, that's who he was trying to serve. He wasn't serving wealth or power and that you just do not see today at all i don't think in our our leadership so i think that's what struck me the most about kennedy and i think like you know i think there are a lot of you know factors that probably contributed to his assassination but i think at the end of the day it comes down to the fact that he was doing his job which is he was serving the people rather than the oligarchs and that's really At the most basic level, I think what it comes down to
0: when it comes to the first steps of change, I would say, um, would that be the civil rights that you kind of focused in or or learned about like, I, I think even now there's still the narrative that Kennedy was his biggest mess up was the Bay of Pigs and I think when you really start to examine what that was I mean. He said, as you know, in charge of these institutions or these agencies, I'm the president, I take full responsibility, even though he that was Eisenhower's baby, basically, it was an inherited problem. And I think that's something I mean, who takes the blame anymore in today's world, especially something like a big mess up like that. And he did it. And history kind of writes it as that's his failure. And I think, you know, you start diving in more, you start realizing there's a lot of things that are told that aren't necessarily the true story
1: yeah i think the well i think the first policy to your point that i became aware of was definitely civil rights because that's the one thing that was talked about publicly like growing up i didn't hear anything about the congo or africa or the alliance for progress so but civil rights was spoken about because there was continuity there from kennedy to johnson right because the civil rights bill did eventually pass so i feel like that's something that you know the mainstream media could talk about Um, I think the things that they avoid talking about are the vast majority of policies where you could see a change between Kennedy and Johnson, because then that, you know, introduces potential motives for his murder, and they they don't want to show that change occurred between the two, right? In terms of the Bay of Pigs, yeah, I think it's incredibly impressive that he took responsibility for that. Um, regardless of whether he was pressured into it or even conned into it, or if he had, you know, didn't really have many choices because it was all set up by the time he became president, you know, so pulling out was not easy either because he would have had to do something with those exiles. You know, they would have had to come back to America. You know, Kennedy would have been viciously attacked for being weak on communism. And I do think he had valid concerns about the Castro regime, obviously, you know, because missiles ended up being placed in Cuba. So, he didn't like the um, Cuba's affiliation with the Soviet Union. I think he did have security concerns for the United States, correctly had security concerns for the United States over that. Um, but I think him taking responsibility, yeah, nobody does that today. They all shift blame or shift responsibility. But, you know, K- Kennedy manned up and he said, you know, I made a mistake and you, uh, you know as he said defeat has you know um defeat is an orphan or victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan i think is what he said
0: that's a good quote too when it comes to castro's assassinations did you look into kennedy's involvement into castro's assassinations
1: yeah from what i can see i mean he had no knowledge or involvement of that um and would not have approved that
0: yeah there's a thing with robert kennedy i came across a document where they were talking about that and he was like no we we were sh- as shocked as anybody and I think it's even when Operation Northwoods comes into the picture Oliver Stone kind of talks about it you know about blowing up a Cuban airliner they had multiple plans of Operation Northwoods but you like, looked at it, like what the hell is going on and I like that so I was like thank you finally somebody's not just like signing a paper and passing it on to the next person they're actually reading it and be like hold on a second what are we doing
1: yeah Northwoods is insane I don't actually talk about Northwoods in my book but yeah that's just just the thought that people were thinking about doing those things is just insane. And it just shows you, you know, that you should question everything. Like any event that happens, you should question because you don't really know what happened and you're not gonna get it from, you know, the mainstream press. So you really have to dig into everything on your own.
0: Now you mentioned Johnson's policies and Kennedy's policies, kind of the change that happened. I know a little bit about Vietnam, but could you take me through some examples?
1: Yeah, so there's tons of examples. So in my book, I'll just kind of go.
0: America's last president.
1: Yeah, down the line. So, you know, I first focus on the CIA. So Kennedy was trying to, you know, crack down on the CIA. He did sign off on NASM's 55 and 57, which tried to put covert operations, you know, more under military control than under CIA. And he did try to reduce the CIA budget, you know, give more authority to ambassadors, things like that there's no indications that Johnson was trying to crack down on the CIA at all. Um, then I go into the Congo, where, again, Kennedy was supporting, um, you know, he put a lot of effort to get a constitutional government set up there, um, where he had a centrist, adula, you know, as the prime minister. And he actually was supportive of Lumumba as well. Lumumba was assassinated before, like three days before Kennedy took office. And, It's believed he might have been assassinated because there was concern over what Kennedy would do when he came into office, like whether he would give support to Lumumba or not. Um, And then when Johnson took over there, you know, basically there was a military, um, the military government replaced the constitutional government in the Congo. And essentially the Congo, you know, remained destitute destitute for decades and decades until today, really.
0: Um, When it comes to Lumumba. Was he assassinated by our government or was he assassinated? Did they let him get assassinated?
1: It's I don't know if we know definitively. There was definitely um, documentation that the CIA wanted to get rid of him. And it appears that Eisenhower ordered the assassination at a meeting. Um, But it was actually like Lumumba's enemies that did the deed, so to speak, if that makes sense. But it appears, you know, they were encouraged by us.
0: I had a Stephen Kinzer on the show who wrote Poisoner in Chief about Sidney Gottlieb, and I came across a document on the Castro assassination attempts, and it had a list of the people that were that they knew of that were involved in a lot of these. I guess this was from the House Select Committee on Assassinations documentation on it, but Sidney Gottlieb's name, and then right beside it, it says the people that they were planned to assassinate, and there was like four different people, but two of the people that were labeled for him were Lumumba, and castro and i knew about the castro attempt was to make his beard fall out by using poison but i looked at lumumba i was like i've seen that in the new jfk film that jim de Eugeno made where you know there's the famous phone call that kennedy hears the news and his face you know he looks despaired and i think i, I was like i thought we he we might have accidentally messed up and he got assassinated or something like that but i didn't know there was assassination attempts on him too
1: yeah for sure um so after after I guess Congo, I focus on Africa as a whole. So Kennedy increased financial aid to Africa drastically, and then Johnson took that back down drastically. Um, he also had more African heads of state visit him than any other president. He averaged almost one a month. And then there were more revolutionary leaders that Bobby visited with that JFK couldn't diplomatically see. So he put a lot of lot of attention on Africa, which, you know, after Johnson became president, that kind of went away. You know, then i go into Latin America a bit in my book and Alliance for Progress and, you know, how committed Kennedy was to social reform and land reform. A lot of people viewed the Alliance for Progress as, as kind of a socialist adventure, I guess you could say, you know, but he really wanted to see these countries, these Latin American countries become self-sufficient, you know, not just be dependent on one export, for example, and really, you know, develop internally, which obviously a lot of wealthy interests want to see those countries remain as basically, you know, resource extraction regions and not necessarily have their own independence and their own power. So, you know, that changed drastically after Kennedy passed away. You know, then I go a lot into his economic policies and he was, you know, um, doing a lot to really crack down on industry. You know, there was the steel industry, there was the chemical industry, even the pharmaceutical industry. You know, so he was not just catering to these powerful industries, but he was really, you know, he gave a consumer rights pledge, you know, where he said consu- every consumer has the right to safety, you know, the right to be informed, the right to be heard. I've never and heard the, of this. Yeah, so, and the right to choose. Um, and so he, you know, uh, asked for better, like truth and packaging laws, truth and lending laws you know, he forced the FDA to list side effects, to do a retroactive studies on drug, drug efficacy, and something like 600 drugs were removed the market um, because they weren't effective in what they were claiming they were effective for and things like that, you know, and he did a massive pesticide study, um, and in May in 63, May of 63, their recommendations from that study came back and You know, they were gonna try to find other methods of pest control and whatnot. You know, and now today we're massively suffering from, you know, pesticide toxicity and environmental impact. So he was doing a lot domestically that I think people are not aware of, particularly cracking down on industry. Whereas today you see kind of all presidents tend to more or less cater to industry, you know, whatever's gonna benefit profits and and whatnot. That's what we do. It's not really about people's well-being or health and Um, So I talk about that a bit in the book. Um,
0: Did you ask the question why he was interested in cracking down on industry? Like that had to be, from I knew he read a lot. So I was curious that a lot of his reading that he just, he became, I mean, he ran on the platform of a cold warrior, whether it was just to get elected or not. But I think at some point he really experienced change by going to these other countries and kind of seeing what was going on. And I mean, everything that he was doing, he had to be picking it up from somewhere. I mean, if you watch the debate between him and Nixon, Nixon's kind of saying the kowtow line, that's usually always been out there. It seems like the whole direction that we were going before Kennedy was this strong government. We're going to you know, use our missiles and we're going to show that we're the big guys. And then Kennedy came in talking about a whole different thing talking about economic policies and talking about fixing our education systems, making a, a white baby's education the same as a black baby's education. That's exact words that he said in the debate. And it's just like I mean, I think everybody, I was shocked hearing it. I was like, wait a minute, this was what, what time, what time did this come out? And then that's revolutionary thinking back then. And they pan the camera over to Nixon. He's just speechless.
1: Yeah, I think Kennedy um, was very intellectual from a young age. You know, he traveled around the world from a young age, um, you know, because obviously his father had the funds to allow him to do that. You know and he was also sick a lot when he was younger so he was in bed reading history books a lot and so i think he was thinking um you know intellectually from a very very young age um and really throughout his whole life you know and i think when it comes down to industry i think he understood you know kind of the intense motive for profit and that you know if we don't um put some kind of checks and balances on industry then they're just going to run rampant to to make whatever profits they need to make at the harm of the consumer, you know, because Kennedy in his consumer rights pledge said that, um, you know, having industry accountability can impact a consumer's life more than a raise in salary might, you know, because if the money is going to more valuable things, that adds more value to the person than even a wage increase might, if that makes sense. so he kind of, he understood, you know, the danger of industry corruption, and he really wanted to, you know, make sure that Americans were treated fairly and not taken advantage of.
0: Looking out for the little guy. I mean, the the, the consumer thing I've never heard of before, and I, you mentioned the Alliance for Progress. When did that start? And what did that that really exactly entail? I know it's about kind of helping out other countries and making them, I guess, less dependent on other um, certain exports, but I'm very very i guess rough in that area of trying to understand what that is yeah
1: so he uh the initial charter was in august of 1961 and it was supposed to be a decade-long program and it was supposed to be driven by the latin american countries themselves so they were supposed to make their own proposals as to the changes they were going to make and then kennedy made funds available i think it was 10 or 20 billion um in grants and as well as in loans uh low interest long-term loans because the other thing is you know kennedy said in a speech in 1960 that latin america pays all the aid we give them just goes to high interest that they had on previous loans and you know and he was saying we need to get them out of that debt cycle where they're not just paying interest on loans but where they're actually you know putting that giving that money to the development of their own people you know so he wanted to see development of roads and schools and you know he wanted you know, to them to increase agricultural output, to do uh, give land ownership to people and things like that. So it was really on sort of um, taking away the power of the oligarchy and making them more democratic countries, because Bobby Kennedy, when he wrote about the Alliance for Progress, He said, you can't have a democracy without land ownership because people have to have a stake in the ground, a stake in the country that they live in, right? So if everyone is just peasants and doesn't own any of the land, then it's not possible to have a democracy under those conditions. Um, So that's, you know, he was encouraging those kind of things and giving, you know, aid and support
0: to those kind. Did he get flack from people or more of his administration for, I mean, you said something like $20 billion. I start thinking like how many people today when they hear that we're doing foreign aid would complain that it's not going to us or how many people in the military industrial complex or just around Kennedy in general hear that they go, wait, we need defense money. We need all this type of spending that gets more directed towards. And I'm just curious if anybody raised a flag at that. Or, oh or yeah. Friend.
1: Yeah, for sure. It was intense. And I go into it quite a bit in my book. So there was massive, massive pressure on Kennedy over his foreign aid and you know, he said multiple, multiple times that he believed that giving aid to other countries was more important to American security than even military spending was, you know, because his kind of view was if these countries become self-sufficient and become independent, you know, and become internally prosperous, then they won't be influenced by the Soviet Union. They won't be taken over by the Soviet Union or infiltrated by communists, if they're truly independent on their own so his idea was that if every country is independent that's going to only add to the security of Americans because those countries won't be taken over by other imperial interests right and so really he believed in very decentralized power right because if you have decentralized power then you're never going to have a situation where a tyrant might rise up and cause problems or imperial interests might rise up and cause problems because power is so dispersed and so decentralized that that's not possible. And so Kennedy did talk about that, how important foreign aid and economic aid was and how it was even more important to our security than military aid was. And he, yeah, he got massive, massive flack for that all the way through 63. In fact, at his very, very last press conference, another topic that I cover that changed drastically from Johnson to Kennedy was um, U.S. policy towards Israel. So JFK was very, very tough on Israel. Um, You know, he wanted a resolution to the refugee issue. You know, he said the status quo is not acceptable. You know, he tried to get the Israeli or the uh, American Zionist Council to register as a foreign agent. Um, You know, he tried to create very good relations with Nasser and give a lot of aid to Egypt. And then, of course, he went after them. he tried to get them to abort their nuclear weapons program so at his very last press conference on November 14th so there was a something called the Groening amendment where they basically were saying you can't give aid to countries that you know I guess they're saying are quote unquote might be threatening other countries that are recipients of U.S. aid, and that amendment was for the purposes of um cutting aid to Egypt. So Kennedy wanted and did give a lot of aid to Egypt because he wanted very good relations with Nasser. And Senator Groening put in an amendment to basically try to cut that off. And if you read through the memos, Kennedy thought that Israel was pushing Groening to give to push this amendment through. So he was really really upset at his last press conference and he basically stated, you know, what we're doing is terrible and if we don't, you know, if we don't give aid to these countries, they're just going to become radical they're just going to become threats to the U S that we need to have good relations with other countries. Um, you know, and he even stated, you know, if you don't like my policies, you know, don't cut off my ability to um, you know, to to have foreign relations or to, you know, give aid to other countries, let the voters, you know, vote me out is basically, which is really sad because that was his last press conference, you know, and obviously they didn't wait for the voters to get him out. You know, he they were he was taken out. But, yeah, so he was lots of lots of pressure on him for foreign aid. And even Castro commented on the Alliance for Progress, and he said, you know, Kennedy's great ideas aren't going to amount to anything because they're going to create so much opposition from the oligarchs that, um, you know, is he's they're just going to be bound to fail, that he's going while his intentions are good and his ideas are great the opposition to what he's trying to do is just going to be way too intense in Latin America. Um, And so Castro said, yeah, he was going to fail at that.
0: When it comes to the model of a president, I mean, I get why your book's called America's Last President, because when you kind of look at exactly what you just said about what Kennedy was doing, and they had to make an amendment basically to stop him, you realize what the president's power really is, and especially in an informed one who's doing his own reading and kind of doing, I mean, if he's meeting with ambassadors every single month and kind of talking about these issues, he's getting the first person experience rather than hearing it through like a, a secretary or an aide or something of that sort, which is I mean, that's new. I mean, I think even you look in Johnson's administration, most of the secretaries are doing a lot of his work. And I've talked to Johnson fans and I've listened to a lot of his phone calls. I don't know. To me, they're like listening to those White House tapes are insane. Like, I feel like they just add in another layer of who the person is. Not like bad stuff. I mean, even hearing Kennedy talk to some of these generals where he was, I think he was complaining about a furniture spending. I don't know if you've ever called. Yeah, that I heard that, that. Yeah,
1: it's a hilarious call.
0: <laughs> that's that to me is hilarious because the general general speechless like i don't know what these chairs where he goes you know it's a big he's like yeah it's a major fuck up and i'm just like hearing a president say that out of anything everyone thinks like they're all these buttoned up like you know individuals that are like you know straight line and everything i'm like i like that that gives him a little bit of personality you get to understand more about who this person was and i mean going to all the messages, at looking. did you look at any of the letters or memos from Castro, Khrushchev, um, some of the Palestines that were talking about what was going to happen now that Kennedy has been killed, Uh, uh, worried about this change in whoever the leader was going to be, afraid that some of these policies that Kennedy established was just going to turn around and do a 180.
1: Yeah, so I did read all the Kennedy Khrushchev letters. Um, I did read all the Kennedy Ben-Gurion letters. Yeah. So uh, just going back to something you were saying a minute ago, like uh, R.W. Comer, who was um, really, uh, you know, greatly involved with Kennedy's Middle East policy, said Kennedy knew more about the Middle East and about Africa than anyone else in his administration, like more than the Secretary of State. You know, he read every memo, like everything that came through. He was on top of everything. You know, when he met with leaders of foreign countries, those leaders came away like so impressed and thinking my god this guy knows more about my country than i do so he was extremely extremely informed on everything that was going on globally you know in all the different regions particularly third world regions which i think presidents tend to ignore um yeah and there was a lot of concern you know after you know kennedy was gone in terms of how much policy would change i know robert kennedy i think sent walton out to uh Russia, I'm sure you probably know. Him and Jackie gave a letter to Khrushchev. This was, I think, a couple of weeks after his Kennedy's assassination. That um, you know, U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union was going to become a lot more tough, and you know, détente wasn't going to be possible. And that you know, Jackie and Bobby knew that the Soviet Union had nothing to do with Kennedy's assassination. Um, you know that they thought it was a high-level plot, but not from the Soviet Union um you know and that Bobby was one day going to run for president and hopefully that detente that Kennedy had started with the Soviet Union Bobby could continue uh which is kind of insane that you know he wrote that kind of letter to the Soviet Union a couple of weeks after Jack's death I mean it it just I don't know it's it's pretty incredible I think it shows that you know in some regards he almost trusted the Soviet government more than the American government because he couldn't say publicly in America that he thought there was more to his brother's death than, you know, than what was being told in the press, but he could say that to the Soviets, which is pretty wild, I think.
0: Well, did you look at Kennedy's relationship with his brother? I mean, there's that famous photo I think uh, David Talbot has in his book where it's both of them kind of talking away from everybody. And if you're thinking military industrial complex, if you just see a picture of that, you're like, that's gonna piss them off really bad because they're brothers, they're gonna talk about things obviously that they're not gonna share with every person in their administration. And they're they probably talked about a lot of the stuff that was going on in other countries and talked about policies and you know what their plan was going to be. And I mean that is just threatening to the establishment in a sense. I mean, I hate to phrase it like that, but it was an interest. I mean, did you look into their relationship at all when it came to making deals or making or taking trips at least to other countries?
1: Yeah, they did. They took a long trip together in 51 through Asia and the Middle East. Um, yeah. I mean, from what everyone has said about them, you know, they used to communicate by eye contact and it was like, they had their own almost like telepathy, you know, and meetings, you could see them communicating without words. And, you know, I think one always knew what the other was thinking. And I think there's no doubt that Bobby was like the one person that JFK trusted unequivocally in his administration. You know, I'm not sure there's anyone else really, you know, that he trusted 100 or 1000% like he did Bobby. You know, and in terms of the Oval Office, I remember reading that the only people who could go into the office th- through the back door unannounced were Bobby, and then he gave Lyndon Johnson that right as well. Although, I, I think he gave Johnson that right, although I don't think Johnson really took advantage of it, but Bobby always came in to see him unannounced, you know, through the back door or whatnot. So... Yeah, they had a very intense and close relationship. And I do think that was incredibly threatening to people, you know, especially with Bobby as attorney general, which is also a position of, you know, immense power, that the two of them, you know, were really working together. And I I do agree that they probably, you know, didn't share everything they were thinking. Like, I think JFK, you know, would share things with Bobby, but I think that's sometimes where it would end. Um, you know, in terms of what they were really thinking, and then what they could do publicly or even do around other administration officials.
0: Well, just looking through Kennedy's administration, when you're, I I guess, when you're listening to like some calls or just coming across, you know, who Kennedy was speaking with on a daily basis, did you notice people that he wasn't too happy speaking with? And did you notice people that were, I would say, his close advisors or people that he did trust?
1: Um, I think he more or less trusted, you know, Sorensen and Schlesinger and Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers and kind of those guys around him. You know, I think he had decent relations with like Comer and people like that. Um, You know, I think he was less trustworthy, maybe not trustworthy, but I think he was disappointed in his secretary of state, Dean Rusk, which he felt wasn't really a good, very good secretary. He wanted to... um, have Fulbright as a secretary of state, but because of various pressures, he ended up going with Rusk. And I don't think he was very impressed with Rusk. And so that's why people say, you know, Kennedy acted as his own secretary of state, basically. Um, you know, I think McNamara served Kennedy well. I think, you know, McNamara did a lot of questionable things after Kennedy, but I think, you know, he's the kind of person that, was loyal to the person he served so i think when he worked under kennedy you know he did a good job because he was loyal to kennedy whereas when he worked under johnson you know he was loyal to johnson and they were very different so you know mcnamara changed i guess you could say um you know obviously he was very um skeptical of the cia and the pentagon you know i don't think he thought very much of the generals um you know I think.
0: What speech was that where he talked about scattering the CIA into, you know, a million pieces? It wasn't.
1: It wasn't a speech, and um, I don't think we know definitively for a hundred percent if Kennedy said that or not. It was a New York Times article, and the source I think was not disclosed. So the New York Times article it was a New York Times article I think in 1966 that stated that a some source said that Kennedy wanted to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Um, so we don't know who the New York Times source was, Um, so I don't know if we know for 100% that that quote is accurate or not. Um, However, you know, obviously, I could totally see him saying that. I mean, there's no doubt that he cracked down on the CIA, that he had a lot of concerns over the CIA, you know, starting with NASA's 55 and 57, you know, with the budget cut, things like that, so there's no doubt that he, you know, was concerned about the CIA and wanted to crack down on them and he, I think he wanted more civilian control over covert operations. So it's not that he didn't think um, we had to get rid of covert operations completely, but there needed to be far greater control and transparency over that, you know, that they really should come from the president, you know, or the Pentagon and not some rogue agency. So, you know, I think he was trying to get the cowboy out of the CIA, to so to speak. Like, this shouldn't be some rogue agency that's not accountable to anyone, right? You know, it needs to kind of go up the chain of command.
0: Well, that's backed by evidence. If you look at Watergate, Watergate doesn't read like we're just going to find out what Nixon's doing. The main questions they asked was like, what is the CIA and the FBI doing? I mean, there's pages upon pages. And I've read, though, it's 175 pages on the intelligence report. And um, it's all about what the covert stuff is like, hey, what is going on? And that's where you learn about. I and mean, thank God they did that, because I, I, I think a lot of people would can label it conspiracy. But when you see that, you know, they're up to they made a cancer gun, which I think is crazy and insane. And it's like, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, implicating it or they're putting it into anything. It's just the fact that they have these types of resources and they have the time and the mindset to make all these weird covert things that are obviously unethical. I mean, it opened up a doorway into things where I'm like, you look at Kennedy reducing the budget of the CIA and kind of going after it. I mean, he t- did you look into his speech about shadow societies? I know people go, oh, he's talking about the Illuminati. To me, it's just like, I think he's mentioning people that work in his administration that obviously are talking behind his back or doing some other things behind the curtains that he's you know, kind of aware of, but he doesn't know the full detail
1: yeah so technically that speech was given shortly after the Bay of Pigs so technically he was talking about communism the international communist conspiracy um now whether um there was subtext to that and he was thinking of other things no one can know so you know so it's very possible that in his mind he was thinking about you know the intelligence community in the U.S. about wealth and power you know in his mind he might have been thinking about anything um but technically he was speaking about communism that's what that speech was in reference to so I think there's also I think a lot of um you know I see quotes on the internet Kennedy's last speech before he died and like no that wasn't it at all that speech was in April of 61 you know it was because of the Bay of Pigs and it was about communism but it is what he said could apply to so many things you know and so in Kennedy's mind it might have also applied to other things we, we don't know we only know what he publicly said right um but yeah I think what he said is very true and it's true to today right I mean I do think you know people try to say that everything happens by accident or whatnot but I think it's kind of naive to believe that powerful people don't um work with each other to pursue their own interests you know what I mean or collaborate when they have similar interests to each other you know, even if they differ on other things, they might in one area have a similar interest. Of course, they're going to collude. I mean, so, you know, I think what he said made a lot of sense.
0: The snippets, I would say, where someone takes something out of context and it's like, oh, the shadow society thing is a good example. But then you kind of look at it. I mean, it's the same thing with, um, there's one thing you really can't, I guess, you know take pieces out of and you can just look at the full video and it does show a lot which is when he's offered a cowboy hat. He's offered one twice. But in the video he's offered this cowboy hat and he goes to put it on and you can literally feel the tension in the air like everybody's waiting for him to conform to this I don't know if it was Dallas or not but to this kind of mindset and then he's like I'll put it on when I get back to the White House and it's just like I felt that like I'm watching it 40 years 50 years later and it's like I felt that through a video and I mean I think that kind of shows a lot about the reception that he was getting there. I mean even they had wanted for treason posters and it said Mr. Kennedy is coming to Dallas not President Kennedy I mean people think that dallas was part of it i just look at the political climate of it i mean who was receptive to who was he changing the world with the words that he was saying or was he just changing certain minds of individuals which now seem to be a majority of people that think this way about equal rights and about talking more about labeling down on industry and helping out the common man
1: yeah he hated hats so he said that before he hated wearing hats there's like a few pictures out there with him wearing hats but that's that's probably why he didn't want to put on that hat I've seen that video clip I don't know why he hated hats but he he did um hair yeah so I don't (laughs) I don't know but yeah I think um you know what he did like especially with that 1963 peace speech I mean that was so radical at the time you know think of communism as like the COVID of that era right So think of, you know, in 2020, someone taking, you know, a different stance, let's say on COVID than the narrative in the mainstream. You know, that's what Kennedy was doing. So everyone was fearful of communism during that era. It was like the boogeyman. It was the justification for a large national security state. It was the justification for massive military spending for, you know, CIA powers, etc. And Kennedy was, was like, you know, you could see by 63, he was really trying to end the Cold War. You know, he was humanizing the Russians, you know, in his peace speech. And I think that was a shock for a lot of people, but he got a lot of support as well. I mean, a lot of, you know, he got massive public support for the nuclear test ban treaty. So the public was going with him, I think, you know, I mean, obviously sectors were not um, following him, you know, and we're still in that Cold War mentality. But there's definitely large segments of the American population that were starting to go with him in terms of trying to end the Cold War, you know, trying to stop, you know, being so fearful of this boogeyman sort of thing. Um, But it was radical at the time. I mean, it was really radical, I think.
0: Now, I know you didn't focus into the assassination, but I'm sure you probably know some names that usually get brought up when talks about it are. Did you come across why he fired Alan Dulles? or why any interaction with Hoover would be nice. I mean, I see memos back and forth, but I never see one from Hoover to Kennedy. And I never really see, I mean, I see it more with Johnson. I constantly see Hoover's name being brought up when it comes to anything with Johnson. And Kennedy didn't have really that attachment. I don't know if that was because of the assassination or if it was just a closer relationship that they had. But I'm just curious if you came across any of the names that usually get mentioned in the Kennedy assassination. as you know, like Allen Dulles getting fired or Hoover's involvement when it comes to just being involved in Kennedy's life. I heard they had blackmail over Kennedy. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people. So I'm trying to understand it as much as possible. And everyone's got like a specific niche that they go into. So it's trying to compile it all into one.
1: Yeah. Um, so he did fire Dulles over the Bay of Pigs. That was technically what he fired Dulles for um in terms of Hoover and Jackie Kennedy's oral history she said JFK planned to get rid of Hoover in his second term so I don't think Hoover would have lasted much longer um you know lasted past Kennedy's first term at least not according to Jackie um yeah so I mean he had endless enemies obviously you know I think everywhere you know everywhere he looked and I think Bobby even said that I think someone asked Bobby during lunch you know where are your enemies he's like look around they're everywhere Um, so yeah, there's no doubt that the Kennedy brothers, you know, pissed off a lot of, lot of, lot of people
0: through your Kennedy research. Is there anything you came across that you didn't like, or just maybe one thing that might've kind of shocked you in a way?
1: Um, when you say that I didn't like
0: prefer, like talk a lot of good about Kennedy. I'm just curious if you came across anything like you were kind of shocked to see about Kennedy.
1: Um, no, not really. I mean, you know, he definitely compromised at times, you know, like he sent the advisors out to Vietnam, he signed off on Operation Mongoose. So, you know, there were things that he did that, you know, I think he shouldn't have done, you know, like those things. But, you know, I also understand the immense pressure he was under, Um, you know, he still has to work with the CIA, he still has to work with the Pentagon, he still has, you know, real concerns about Cuba's connection to the Soviet Union and the potential security concerns that causes the United States, Um, and he, like in 1960, had some interview. You know, he compared Cuba to Algeria. So just like he wanted Algeria to have independence from France, he wanted Cuba to have independence from the Soviet Union. And that's what he said to Castro. He's like, you know, we can normal. I don't care if you're socialist, communist, whatever. We can normalize relations. I just don't want you to be a satellite for the Soviet Union. Because that was his concern. Right. So I think that's why he uh, signed off on Mongoose. Right. Because he did have security concerns and correctly. Right. Because we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, um, you know, were they great things? No. Um, But there was nothing that really where I thought like, you know, oh, this guy is a bad guy or nothing like that. You know, I think, you know, I think he had um, incredible character and I think he had compassion and empathy for people. Um, I certainly don't think he was perfect. You know, I think he gave into pressures, um, understandably so, you know, and I think the issues he was facing were incredibly complex and nuanced. So it's difficult to know what the right decision is when you're dealing with such complex and nuanced issues. Um, You know, so sometimes you just make bad decisions because it's difficult to know what the right decision to make is. You know, so he was by no means perfect, but I think he was genuinely trying to serve the public like he wasn't working for oligarchs. He was working for the people. And I think that is very, very evident when you really look at all his policies from domestic to foreign. There's, I think, incredible consistency within him
0: when he was creating backdoor, I guess, negotiations with Khrushchev. When did that start? And I mean, if he's that was I'm guessing after his talks with Castro being was he? there still this fear of the Russia taking over like was he taking Khrushchev at face value
1: yeah so I think those letters started sometime in 61 I can't remember exactly when but they started in as far back as 61 so I read all the letters between Khrushchev and Kennedy I think Khrushchev sent the first letter if I remember correctly And he basically said, let's communicate like one-on-one outside of these formal diplomatic channels so that we can be like more honest with each other and more transparent and whatnot. And those letters um, dealt a lot with potential disarmament, um, potential, you know, nuclear test ban treaty, which they did eventually sign together. And those are the issues that mainly dealt with. And it's kind of funny because in the letters, they both say like, yeah, we know for... um, that you have to say certain things and you have to say certain things because, you know, you know, like Khrushchev understood that Kennedy, you know, had to say, let's say negative things about communism. And Kennedy understood that Khrushchev had to say, you know, negative things about capitalism or about the U S. So they kind of, it's funny, they kind of understood the public pressures that each was facing. Right. And that sometimes they had to kind of play into those pressures, but that they could, um, hopefully or ideally trust each other in those letters um so those communications started um in 61 and i don't think the cuban missile crisis would have been resolved peacefully like it was if those back, um, one-on-one letters were not going back and forth because they ultimately led to the resolution of the cuban missile crisis because it was the private letter that khrushchev sent to kennedy not the public ones that essentially ironed out the deal that then Bobby um, met with de and I think, to finalize that deal. But that was all done privately. It started with a private letter, and then it started, It ended with Bobby's private meeting with DeBrennan. and That's what ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. So if they had been relying only on formal diplomatic channels, I don't think that crisis would have been resolved. Or maybe it would have, but not the way it was, you know. Do you think Not it as added, easily as it was,
0: do you think it added perspective to him with those letter and those one-on-one negotiations? Like, I mean, it's outside eyes looking in, I always get recommended get your news. Like if you're going to learn news about America, get it from like another country, they kind of give it to you more straight. And I'm like, I'm thinking if he's writing letters to Khrushchev, I mean, they're both acknowledging that there's power systems that they both are kind of working around that obviously has them going in a certain direction where they might necessarily feel like they are they have to kowtow to that. And I think with Khrushchev, you know. If if you look at his, he had an assassination file on Kennedy as well. So it was mostly like in defense to be like, Hey, we didn't kill him, but we think it was a high power elite that did that. And it's like, so he was aware of what was going on. And if he was transmitting that in a letter, if he was talking about, I know you have certain things you have to say, but you know, this and this, and they're, that's giving you more perspective on just the way another country views you. It's, you know, it's hard to see or recognize evil if you're surrounded by it, but outside eyes looking in can kind of help out in a sense.
1: Yeah, no, I think I do think those letters helped a lot because you know, they were able to have genuine communication whereas I think when you do it publicly, you do have to be, you know, Khrushchev can't say publicly what he can say privately and same for Kennedy, right? So I do think those private communications gave them um I think you know, more honesty than they would have been able to have in their communications because even if those more public letters were just public to the State Department and not to the American people, that's still a lot of people looking at letters and you know giving their input and stuff, which maybe Kennedy didn't want and cruise ship didn't want.
0: Um, when it comes to the civil rights kind of movement that, I mean, did he spark up real change? Like did any schools kind of start you know, breaking down the barriers of just having only whites, but allowing other kids to go there as well too?
1: Yeah, so he was, um, he did a lot on civil rights from day one. So like during his inaugural parade, you know, he was like, how come there isn't any, you know, black students in the Coast Guard Academy? And so within, you know, next year, they were enrolling black students. You know, he asked everyone in his cabinet to hire African-Americans into their um, departments. You know, he um, got rid of like segregation and things like national parks and, you know, federal buildings you know, he gave the government the authority to cut contracts with, uh, you know, government contractors who were enforcing discrimination, things like that. Um, And then, of course, he was reacting to a lot of civil rights crises. So at the University of Mississippi, at the University of Alabama, um, where he was making sure that those court orders, you know, that allowed the students to attend those universities that they were going to be able to attend, you know, so there were a quite, you know, significant showdowns there because the governors and the universities didn't want those students in there, you know, so Kennedy had to use like federal marshals and stuff to get them, you know, into school, Um, which is kind of crazy, you know, when you think about it today, but yeah, there was, you know, not very receptive in the South to integration or certain places in the South, you know, but there was also a lot of voluntary desegregation, so Him and Bobby met uh, with a lot of business leaders, mayors, governors, you know, encouraging voluntary segregation. So even before he introduced the civil rights bill, there had already been a lot of, you know, voluntary desegregation happening
0: yeah my, my knowledge from that only just comes a little bit from forrest gump where you see the schools and everyone standing you know protesting and do that i'm the civil rights thing i did i thought that was going to be when i dived into the martin luther king topic i was going to learn a lot more about that you know than what they teach you in school but then you realize kennedy was kind of before all that and then you kind of understand why everyone says like if you understand the kennedy assassination it kind of you realize where everything's kind of gone downhill from there because I mean, there's a lot of similar notes in the assassination aspects, but just the things that he was saying. I mean, you're seeing people that later, you know, RFK following a little bit of what kennedy was doing mlk doing things in civil rights i mean you just got this whole area where it's like okay so i'm seeing links to all of this and it's like weird how those three names have all been and it's interesting every jfk researcher studies mlk or they study rfk where it's just like okay so something's going on i don't know i'm not going to get all conspiratorial into it
1: yeah and it's actually i talk about it in my book um MLK may be the reason that JFK got elected, because I don't know if you're familiar with this story. So MLK got arrested about a week or two before JFK's, um, before election. So late October 1960, he got arrested and he got sentenced because of a traffic violation. He got sentenced to four months in prison and he was transferred to that prison. And then JFK called his wife and said, you know, we'll do what we can. Now, he didn't tell Bobby and he didn't tell um, his core campaign staff because he felt they would not agree with the phone call, Um, but he wanted to do something. So he called Coretta. And then after Bobby found out, he was pissed at JFK because he's like, you just lost the election. Like, we just lost all the southern states. Like, this phone call that you made is going to get out and, you know, we're screwed. It's over. And then, but then Bobby was so angry at like what happened and at the injustice of it and everything that he went and he called the judge himself later. And he basically said, you need to let this man out of prison. And I don't know what, you know, what he said to the judge or whatnot, but the judge then let King out of prison. So King got out of prison because of Bobby's phone call. And then what happened is, um, I think woofer and, uh, Uh, shriver uh, who were working both on kennedy's campaign and without telling the kennedy brothers because they felt they would veto it so the kennedy brothers didn't want this public because to bobby's point they thought this would make jfk lose the election if it got out that they got king out of jail um but what Shriver and woofer did is they essentially handed out these blue pamphlets at black churches like the weekend before the election and i think they handed out like 2 million pamphlets and that uh, swung the African American vote, or increased the African American vote towards Kennedy, and it's believed that maybe what gave Kennedy the election was that he got more of the African American vote than he was expected to get, and I think it's because he got King out of jail.
0: That said, that that said, that on the blue memos,
1: uh, on the blue memos, it didn't say that Bobby, it didn't didn't say anything about Bobby's phone call, but it said that had a quote from King's father. Where he said that JFK called Coretta to console her and to really help her. I don't think it said anything about who got who out of jail. And I don't think anything was said about Bobby, but that he did call, you know, King's wife and offer his condolences and try to help out. And Nixon did nothing. Like, and I think Martin, and I have a quote in Martin Luther King from my book saying that, you know, he felt Nixon was a coward, that you know, him and Nixon, he thought him and Nixon were friends but you know when he was sent to jail he didn't hear a peep from Nixon and, and it was the you know the kennedys that got him out of jail so had that not happened jfk may not have been elected so it's kind of crazy that the three of them that were involved in that election swing you know ended up all all assassinated within 8 years it's- Kind of crazy
0: I believe what people would call that a coincidence but i'm like there's only so many damn coincidences before some you got to question at least more than one but um when it comes to a- kennedy's death so after kennedy dies um did any of his policies stay the same did anybody or any you know other political figures did they kind of take i guess some aspects of Kennedy, what he was doing and try and keep that going at all? Or did Johnson just reverse them all? Like I said, I know about the Vietnam and I know a little bit about what you told me earlier. Um, I'm just curious if there was anything that anybody picked up that was good or maintained the same. And, Did anybody raise questions about it besides JFK researchers or people that are some of the first generation researchers, Did any political figures make any giant I've seen some magazines from time that do say that there's conspiracy to kill Kennedy, I don't think they were 100% in line I think. There was definitely some individual reporters that were saying that, you know, there's nothing else here but a lone nut. But there are some scandal articles that were talking about. And I think they were getting information. I read an Australian article that was even talking about the Kennedy assassination, saying it was corporate elites or it was power elites. So I'm curious if the political climate was disrupted at all. Obviously, you know, assassination happens, the world's kind of stunned. But, you know, did anybody? respect anything that Kennedy was doing enough to either speak up about it or maintain some of the things that he was doing
1: um so in terms of foreign policy I think it was pretty much a 180 after Kennedy was assassinated now I don't think the public was particularly aware of Kennedy's foreign policy just like the public is typically not aware of foreign policy today right it's not something people are interested in that much which is you know they should be but they're typically not so There was a 180 turn there, but I don't think many of the American public was aware of that turn because they don't, you know, they don't really understand the difference in policy. Um, Now, Kennedy was kind of on an island in his administration in terms of foreign policy. You know, he was much more supportive of third world nationalism than really anyone else in his administration. You know, it, it was really him. And even Comer said that it was really Kennedy that had interest in all this stuff and not anybody else. You know, they, you know, his People working in his administration kind of had to follow his orders but he was the one that was really interested in that stuff so you know after he died and johnson had different policies you know people just you know went to those but they were never really that interested in kennedy's policies in the first place so and the wider public was not aware of them in terms of domestic policy i think there's a lot more continuity but i think it's more that kennedy had already set a lot of things in motion so you know medicare was well on its way to passing You know, Kennedy was already setting up plans to, you know, do some kind of program on poverty. The civil rights bill was well on its way to passing. So a lot of those things that Johnson gets credit credited for, you know, JFK set up. And Jackie even said that in her oral history, that all this good stuff that JFK set up, Johnson's now going to get credit for, even though he he really had nothing to do with it. And and the mainstream media gives Johnson credit for those things today. Um, So I don't think the public domestically saw that much difference but to me there was massive difference because johnson kind of rode the wave that kennedy set up for him you know what i mean and i don't think johnson was really doing that much himself you know i don't think he was a good president at all and and jackie even said in her oral history that jfk would say my god can you imagine if lyndon johnson ever became president what would happen to this country um so you know kennedy you know didn't think johnson would be a good president either um
0: When it comes to the relationship with Jackie, this is going to sound really stupid, but you just got to hear me out on this. How good was that relationship? I mean, to the point where I've heard people mention that when he was going somewhere or new territory, Kennedy was going to give a speech, he would bring Jackie with him. And I'm like, what? And it's like this, I guess she had some other aspect, maybe settling people down or being more comfortable or making people kind of drop their guard a little bit to kind of this where they can have an even conversation without any pent up views or something like that. But I mean, she knew a lot about what was going on, like a little bit more than just average. How was your day? You know, that type of talk that you would usually get. So it made me feel like she had a bigger importance to play than just, you know, the, the husband or the wife of Kennedy more like she was, you know, his, you tell your wife everything, I guess. But I mean, in that aspect, you know, he brought her, from what I've heard from other people to situations that he thought that maybe she could help out in a sense of just being, you know, easygoing, um, a little bit uh, a brighter personality, I would say where there might be an area where there's tension.
1: Yeah. So I listened to her whole oral history based on that. I think they had a very, very good relationship and a very close relationship and she did speak Spanish and French. So particularly like when he went to Latin America or he went to France, you know he would have her speak because he didn't speak those languages or at least not well and she would translate a lot of books for him so when he gave his like Algeria speech in 1957 she translated a lot of books from French for him to help him study and prepare for that speech um and so yeah they did they did have a very close I think working relationship now she tried to um You know, she said in her oral history, she didn't want to bombard him with questions at the end of his day because she didn't want to add to his stress. So she just let him say what he wanted to say. You know what I mean? Like she didn't ask, she wanted to, she's like, at times I was dying to ask a bunch of questions, but I didn't want to, you know, she felt like her role was to give him an escape and a, a chance to relax and kind of forget about the stresses of the day. So she said she kind of absorbed things through osmosis and, you know, what he did want to say um but she still knew quite a lot you know even from that and he did give her access to like all the CIA memos and stuff and And she said she read him for about three weeks and she was so insanely depressed. They were so like depressing to read through, you know, because it's just all the horrible things happening all around the world. She's like, I couldn't handle it anymore. She's like, if I continue to read this every day, I'll be in a bad mood when I see him, you know, every night. So she's like, I'm I'm just not going to read this stuff. But, you know, she did say she was amazed at how he could deal with so much, I guess, negativity in the world and, you know, be able to cope and then come home at night and still you know be happy and you know so but she said he, he had a very good ability to carp um you know to kind of set things aside um you know and and put things away when he needed to
0: i got one last question for you and this is kind of, you might know the answer to this i don't know but at love field airport like when they're about to go do their route or go you know before the assassination happens Do you know why Johnson requested that? I don't know if it was Connolly or not to ride in his vehicle. And there was that little argument, that little spat that they had um, where if he's he's not going to ride in your car and if you keep complaining, he's just going to walk or he said something to that effect. Did you look into that at all?
1: No, I know some people think Johnson was aware the assassination was going to happen. I don't think he was. I, yeah, I don't know if he was or not. Somebody said he ducked in his car before the shooting. I don't know if that's he said true he's or not. Listening
0: to a radio, and then there's like him looking over, and I mean that makes a lot more sense. I think there's definitely when you start looking at figures that people say are part of the assassination plot, like Dulles and all these. I think they're more part of the cover up because there was a good sweeping under the rug. You get picked up. Oh with, yeah, yeah.
1: I I do think that the assassination was carried forward with the knowledge that Johnson was going to give the policies that were desired. So I think, you know, nobody's going to do an assassination and not get what they want out of it, right? So I think it was understood that Johnson was going to follow the pol- the desired policies, but that's very different from Johnson necessarily knowing about it, right? You can know what someone's going to do and them not necessarily knowing about the assassination, if that makes sense. Um, yes, yeah, so I have no idea if you knew or didn't know, but I'm with you. I'm I think more than likely he didn't, but, you know, I'm open to anything. Um, So, oh, go ahead
0: about say because if you listen to some of his phone calls that that man seems like more he's abusing the power of a president than i've ever seen mostly like he asked for ice cream or he's asking for diet tricks and all this and you hear like i've talked to people who are fans of johnson and they talk about oh he had a sense of humor he would act like his brakes on his car were out and his car was a submarine type thing it was a boat basically and he would drive into the lake and the car would float and like he'd have people like people would jump out of the car and panic thinking that he was going to wreck the car or kill everybody and it's like a cruel sense of humor, but it's just like, oh, my God. But you hear his phone calls like the, the one after um, they're, when they're doing the investigation and they're pointing at Lee Harvey Oswald. He says, how many bullets do you have? And he says three. And we know that there was more than three. But he goes, were any of them fired at me? And I'm like, that's a self-preservation aspect. I mean, you can consider that. Um, being part of the plot. I don't think so. Cause you wouldn't sit your car right behind his with your wife on board. But I think that's more like he didn't care about JFK at all in that aspect. I mean, there was, I think he did meet Kennedy or he did do something called her monthly or something like that. But I mean, maybe he had some sorrow for that, but also we have a picture of him on air force one being sworn in and Jackie Kennedy's covered in her husband's blood. She's got a tear rolling down his face. He's winking to somebody as well. So I'm like, I that to me, that's just a very evil thing. And I think that's why people can associate that being part of the assassination. thing. I just consider him like he did not care for Kennedy. And I don't know how they even got on the same president and vice president ticket on that aspect.
1: Oh, so that um, that came about uh, based on Bobby's oral history and I think Jackie's oral history as well. Um, So he was uh, Johnson was a Senate majority leader. And Kennedy felt that if he got the nomination and he didn't at least offer something to Johnson, that Johnson was going to screw him on all of Kennedy's legislation because Johnson was really bitter and vindictive. So JFK felt because JFK passed tons and tons of legislation his first few years, like increased Social Security benefits, you know, Area Redevelopment Act education funding, unemployment, you know, food surplus, et cetera. He did so much legislation and he felt none of that was gonna happen if he had a bitter and vindictive Johnson, a Senate majority leader. So the idea was that he would offer it to him and assuming that Johnson would probably say, no thanks, right? So he thought like, I'm gonna offer it to him. At least we can be on somewhat good graces with each other and maybe he's not gonna screw me over a Senate majority leader, but then Johnson accepted. JFK is like, holy crap, right? And so then he sends Bobby down to try to talk Johnson out of it. And this is where the whole feud between Bobby and Johnson starts that never ends, right? The two men hated each other. So Johnson blames Bobby for trying to talk him out of accepting the vice presidency. But of course, Bobby fails. And that's how Johnson got on the ticket, essentially um so they never i mean they were cordial jfk and johnson were cordial with each other i mean jfk was willing to work with anyone right he was a very cordial person and um you know and even in jackie's oral history she would ask him like you know how can you work with some of these people that have been so mean to you and and he's like you know these are just co-workers you know i have to work with them if i have bad relations with them then nothing's going to get accomplished if I want to get legislation through if I want to get things done you know I have to work nicely with these people you know no matter what they've done to me in the past or whatever so so Kennedy was you know okay with working with Johnson I think Bobby had a harder time I think Bobby was more emotional than JFK so I think um you know I think it was a rough more rough going for Bobby to work with Johnson but you know, JFK kind of dealt with him or whatever, but he did say many times, can you imagine if Johnson ever became president, you know, how bad it would be. So, you know, he wasn't impressed with Johnson. That's for sure.
0: There's a Nixon thing. You can look up on YouTube about him talking about Johnson. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, it's supposed to be like off the record. What was happening was they were doing an interview and they went to go get a mic change thing. So the cameras are like, we're not rolling. He goes, no, we're not rolling. And um, he asked him, he goes, did you see that book they wrote about Johnson? And i like, yeah, yeah. Oh, this one? No, 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 the other one. And then he goes, they made him look like an animal. He goes, well, he is an animal. And he like does like this laugh, but then he like, he's looking at the camera. He's like, you know, Johnson doesn't like to come in second. And he smiles. And it's like, I know he's like maybe joking or he's kind of hinting at something, but his, it's just so creepy. It's every horror film I've ever seen in my entire life where the bad guy comes up on stage. Usually they have an eye patch on top of it, but it was just to me, like, I know that's like a lot of insinuating or assumptions on things, but there's just some stuff where it's just like, that's not a smoking gun, but if I've ever, you know, that's as close as one as I think we'll probably get in some aspects of things, but Yeah I don't know I gotta I gotta dive into Johnson's I know towards the ending of his uh what is it his uh term or his term he had his long hair grown out and I don't know if he switched I've had some people tell me that he changed toward the ending so maybe he experienced some change or something maybe a sliver of what Kennedy might have um had when he went on the platform of a cold warrior and kind of started adopting these new ideas but I don't know I mean that's Topic for another discussion, but I appreciate the time you gave me, Monica, to be able to talk on my show. And you know, would you like to promote your book? Where can people find it? oh
1: uh, sure. It's uh yeah. So here's—I don't know if you can see it—America's last color. president. Um, what the world lost when it lost John F. Kennedy. So they can get it at um Amazon or Thrift Books, Barnes and Noble, Target, other outlets. And it's available in um hardback, paperback, ebook, and there's also an audio that I self recorded. Um, that's available.
0: So you did the whole audio. Oh, that's good. Cause I like to listen to the books. So I like to hear it.
1: Yeah, no, I know. I self-recorded the audio. Yeah.
0: And um, do you, do you have um like a Twitter handle, Instagram? Anything uh, like
1: no, I'm not online. No.
0: Good for you. That's a, it's a good thing not to be on social media. I try my best to stay off of it, but I'm going to link all your links in the description. Like I said, it's been a pleasure having you back on or having you on. And then I'd love to have you back anytime you want. Um, Thanks for listening to this episode out of the blank.